to another episode of Strictly Business, the podcast where we talk with some of the brightest minds working in the media business today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. The talk of Wall Street in recent years has been the rise of SPACs, otherwise known as Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, as an alternative to the traditional IPO. Well, there's no one better than today's guest to talk SPACs. Harry Sloan has launched and completed more of them than anyone else, and one of them, DraftKings, may be the most successful one of the hundreds out there, having delivered 450% return on investment. But SPACs are a tricky business, to say the least, particularly in the media and entertainment industries, where Harry certainly knows a thing or two, having enjoyed a long career in Hollywood as the CEO of MGM. So you better believe he's also got some thoughts on that pending Amazon acquisition. We'll be right back with Harry Sloan. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the Body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Welcome back to the Strictly Business Podcast, where my guest is Harry Sloan. He's gone on from a successful Hollywood career to a second chapter as a SPAC deal specialist, both in and outside of the media business. I interviewed him on November 4th at the annual Techtainment Conference at Loyola Law School. 
I want you to give your sense of what the SPAC marketplace is right now as we talk in early November, because when you look at the data, it looks at while 2021 undoubtedly saw an explosion in those, these deals, that burst was really contained to the first quarter. You could see the numbers have come down, although October seems to be yielding fresh activity. So w walk us through what you're seeing. Uh, what's the status of the SPAC market, Andrew? Um, when we did DraftKings, we closed it in March of um, last year, middle of COVID, March of uh, 20. There were about 40 SPACs. Uh, today, there's 600. Um, I think one thing has a lot to do with the other. I think success of DraftKings was the first big, very noticed, successful SPAC with a name brand. And uh, I think that did trigger it. Uh, the 600 SPACs are looking for deals. Most of them won't find a deal. Or many of them won't find a deal. If they don't find a deal in two years, whatever amount of money they raised, in the case of uh, the DraftKings SPAC, we had 400 million. In the case of our last SPAC, which bought Ginkgo Bioworks, 1.7 billion, it all has to be returned to the investors. So the SPAC sponsor has two years. Now, sometimes the deals are done in 18 months, 18 months, two years. Find a company to acquire, file the appropriate uh, presentations and disclosures at the SEC, have it approved, have the deal closed, all in two years, your money goes back. Uh, what do I think is gonna happen with 600 SPACs out there? A lot of them are not gonna end well. Uh, including the one that I think we were just talking about, which is the one acquiring the Trump um, uh, agreement to launch uh, social media or whatever they're actually trying to do. Well, we'll get to Trump in a second. Um, I, what, what I'm curious, though, is also it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's been some regulatory scrutiny with the SEC starting to pay more attention, people on the Hill paying more attention. Um, has that not had a chilling effect here as we look at the numbers and see that that big spike that in deals from March seems to have petered out in subsequent months? Well, the reason they petered out uh, has nothing to do with the potential regulations. Potential regulations started kicking in uh, when the Biden administration took over. Uh, and also, as you, as you alluded to, there's some work in the Senate. But the what you were showing on that chart, uh, which is that there's so many fewer uh, SPACs right now being launched, was because there was way too much speculation going on in the SPAC world. In other words, in order to have 50 or 100 SPACs a month, 300 I saw in one month, you have to have buyers. You have to have money to invest. And the banks were lending incredible amount of money to hedge funds. Hedge funds were, were investing it in SPACs. SPACs were all doing well. So they kept wanting to do that. It looked like easy money. But the more SPACs there were, the more SPACs needed to find a deal. And when they actually find a deal, at that point, the investors in the SPAC have the option of leaving their money in or taking it out. If they decide to leave it in, they actually have to come up with true capital as opposed to bank debt. Anyway, there was crazy speculation going on. Uh, there was other kinds of speculation, uh, which came from the market being so overheated. That's why there's less SPACs. Also, you know, uh, if you try to go after a company to acquire it and take it public in a SPAC, and you've got 10 other SPACs competing, you start seeing how tough the company. Anyway, so it was the marketplace that has caused the SPAC speculation and the overheated market to slow down. 
The regulatory side is another issue, and there's a bunch of lawyers here, um, and uh, congratulations, you're all going to great law school. Um, from a lawyer point of view, the regulation, I think, becomes interesting. What's going on on the regulatory side is new SEC chairman, new SEC is appointed after Biden's elected, comes in at a time when there's a lot of concerns over SPACs, the speculation I just talked about, too much easy money flowing around. If you remember in January and February, there was a lot of talk in the government about these retail trading brokers, Robinhood, and all those stocks like GameStop and AMC that were trading at crazy multiples because there was some exercise in democracy or some excuse for people to spend stimulus checks or for whatever reason, craziness around retail trading, retail investors started buying SPACs. That was all going on. And the SEC said, wait a minute, we need to look at all of that. My view is that the SEC has announced several things that they want to look at with regard to SPACs, none of which are the major issues they should be looking at. The SEC has said publicly, beware of SPACs that have famous people. You know, there's a SPAC that the Shaq is involved in. There's a SPAC that A-Rod is involved in. There's fact that, you know, beware of that. Well, I mean, what does that mean? Uh, the SEC has said, we want to look at some very complicated warrant accounting. Well, I mean, warrant accounting is very technical. All the lawyers and accounts are looking at it are thinking, okay, this is just paperwork. The real concern about SPACs is the trading that goes on in the SPAC shares itself based on rumors and, you know, uninformative announcements of deals that may or may not happen. And I couldn't have asked for a better example of what the SEC and, and all the SEC lawyers need to think about, which has been demonstrated by this so-called Trump SPAC. Um, hmm. All we've seen is a, a, a very general PowerPoint. There's almost nothing in there about that SPAC and what Trump's track record is and the other businesses and what's really in there. There's a promise that this SPAC is going to be able to launch social media with, with Trump. What does that mean? There's, there's, very, there's, there's no detail whatsoever. Yet, that stock, as a SPAC, was trading at $10, traded as high as $170. It's still $58 a share, which is 6x on where the SPAC was trading when it was announced. 300 million shares traded the first day probably been 500 million shares traded since this announcement or whatever it was, a leak. 20 or $30 billion has been invested in this stock at somewhere between 50 and $100 a share. Now, if it doesn't work out, and there's a lot of reasons that it might not work out, not all of them do, the stock goes back to 10 and people lose that 20, 30, $40 billion. And I'm gonna guess whether it's Trump supporters or whether it's just kids who are trading on these retail platforms, it's not a group of people who would be in any position to lose that kind of money. It's not Fidelity, Wellington, Franklin Fund, Capital Group. It's not these trillion dollar mutual funds. It's a lot of individuals, patriotic Americans who think they're doing something good for either Trump or the Republicans. Uh, it's going to be a shit show if it falls apart. And that's the kind of thing the SEC should be looking at. Not what they've announced so far. As far as Congress, we can get to that later if you want. Sure. Well, I guess what I'm wondering, though, is 
given this frothy marketplace that you're describing, how does that impact your strategy, your approach? You've just completed a seventh deal, but is, you know, do you need to sort of sit back and wait till things calm down before you try an eighth or a ninth? I definitely want to pay attention to the regulatory environment. I, I think all we have now out of the SEC are some leaks about things they're looking at. Uh, there isn't anything they're looking at that would deter me or would defer those of you out there that are thinking about being involved in SPACs from wanting to do them. Um, there's nothing going on uh, other than they're looking into it in the Senate. Um, I don't smell that there's going to be regulations that make Trump, the, sorry, the, the mix of a Freudian slip, that make SPACs um, impossible. So no, I mean, I, I, I think we'll be okay. Um, I don't, I don't anticipate anything coming out of the regulatory side. I do anticipate a lot more sanity and less speculation amongst SPAC investors and therefore much less SPACs. Will there be 600 a year from now? No. Will it be 200, 150? There'll be a lot less. It'll, it'll be way less important than it is now. So let's go to the Congress side of this equation. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's been particularly out front. Um, certainly this is, I feel like it's just the beginning in terms of the kind of scrutiny that's going to come from Capitol Hill. What, what do you think? Um, it's, it's too early to tell. Um, it's really more in the purview of the SEC to make sure that investors understand what they're getting involved in, which is the disclosure, which is like, all the various documents, whether it's the S-1, which is an IPO document, or an S-4, which is a merger, both are involved in the SPAC. For those of you that are you know, looking at the technical side of this, SPAC begins as a regular way IPO, an S-1, and when it makes a deal to acquire a company, it files an S-4, which is a simple merger, that's to be voted on by the shareholders. It's within those documents that the SEC has plenty of opportunity to make changes, but I don't anticipate changes that are going to hurt, that are going to uh, hurt legitimate, um, honest SPAC sponsors. As far as, as far as the Congress is concerned, there's no reason right now to believe that there's any particular legislative action. Also, there's so much going on in other areas, you know, whether it's the Build Back America or whether it's the, the infrastructure bill. I mean, the priorities in the, in the Congress right now don't seem to be looking at regulating SPACs or really much Wall Street regulation. Got it. It's interesting looking at your track record in the SPAC market because so many different kinds of companies, you started out with, you know, delivering uh, Wi-Fi to airlines, uh, the Indian satellite business, media plays, uh, not surprising coming from you, but then you kind of went in some very interesting directions with sports betting, synthetic biology. What is it, you know, what is it in terms of what you look for in a company that makes it a good SPAC target? Uh, good question. Yeah, um, during the SPAC hysteria, and I think maybe it's still the case today, there is a view among many people that companies are better off going public through the SPAC process, again, by merging into a SPAC, as opposed to regular way IPO. You know, I don't feel that way. 
I think most deals are still better off going regular the way IPO. If for no other reason that the SPAC sponsors, we add friction. We take, you know, a nice, healthy piece of the company for doing it. And if we're not adding credible value, it doesn't make sense to do that. Um, there are at least two categories that I would say that, that make more sense for a SPAC. Uh, let's, let's talk about DraftKings to start with. DraftKings could not go public regular way and it needed money. DraftKings could not go public regular way because uh, on its own, because its story would have been raise more money, use it for marketing. FanDuel and DraftKings were beating their brains out publicly. There was a view out there that just giving them more money is going to spend on marketing. They needed a different story. The story that made sense for them was a transformative acquisition to buy a company called SB Tech, which was their tech supplier. So they would be able to say to the market, we're not going to compete on how much money we spend in advertising and marketing and how many commercials you guys all see right now on the, on, on, on the World Series or on, on football. We're going to compete because we're going to have the best products. We're going to have the best technology. We're going to have in-game betting, for example, where you know, if uh, if Aaron, I'm thinking of Aaron Rodgers right now because of COVID, but if Aaron Rodgers, you know, has a ball in the two-minute drill, you can bet right during the game on whether or not he's going to score a touchdown or a field goal. You can bet on on a, whether a kick is going to be successful. So products that would be good, that's how they were going to compete. Anyway, in order to do that, they had to acquire SB Tech. So what they were doing was two companies were going public at the same time. You can't do that as a regular way IPO. You have to um, you have to have consolidated financials. You have to show operating history. You have to show the synergies. It would have taken a year. The only way to take two companies public at the same time, in this case, DraftKings and SB Tech is through a SPAC. How? Basically, the SPAC just buys both companies. So a three-way merger, two companies who want to get together, that makes sense in a SPAC. The other one is what we did with Ginkgo Synthetic Biology. And it's what we call a category of one company. So most companies are not category of one. Most companies have several other businesses who compete with them. Whatever the industry is, whether it's automobiles, whether it's hotels, whatever it is, there are many what you call comps, comparables. So if you take a company public, you can value it based on its performance against someone else. However, if you have a company, and this comes often off of the, out of the tech world, which is we call category one, there is no one else doing what they're doing. There's no way to value them versus other companies in the market, right? If we were taking variety public, Andrew, we could value it against Hollywood Reporter. We could value it against other publishing companies. We could value it against New York Times, Washington Post, all these public companies. Synthetic biology, the only company of scale out there is Ginkgo Biologics. So if you take it public regular way, the way a regular way IPO goes is the company goes out on a roadshow, it meets with investors, it sits down with Capital Group or Fidelity or Wellington, it spends 45 minutes going through its business and its valuation, and Thursday at 4 o'clock, everybody has to show their cards. They have to put in order. How much stock you want? A SPAC doesn't work that way. The process of selling to investors a SPAC merger is much more involved. You go to the investors, there's no time limit. 
There's no 45 minute meeting. You can have as long a meeting as you want. You can have a follow-up meeting. You can have a phone call with CFO. DraftKings, perfect example of this. When we took DraftKings public two years ago, there was, there was only sports betting allowed in one state, New Jersey. But the Supreme Court had uh, passed it, had, had invalidated a federal law, which had prohibited sports betting and said, no, state by state can, can allow sports betting. So each state had to go through some kind of regulatory process. How long would that take? California, New York, Florida, uh, Texas, the four biggest states, two years later, still don't have sports betting. Uh, we may never have sports betting in California. It depends on whether you think the influence of the tribes who control betting and, and casinos are going to be able to prevent it. Florida, it's the Seminole Indians. I mean, it, you don't know. Texas, it's the, uh, it's the churches who are opposing it. So how does an investor decide two years ago when only one state had sports betting, what was the value of a sports betting? How big is the business going to be? We call the TAM, Total Addressable Market. How big a share is DraftKings? So you needed someone, in our case, to put together projection. Okay, within one year, six states. Here's one we think. Within two years, 12 states. Here's what the business looks like at maturity. You can't do that in a regular way, IPO. You can't make five-year projections. You can't make one-year projections because you take on liability. So in a SPAC, you can provide much more information. You can give long-term projections. The investors don't have to believe them. They can say, hey, you know what, let's have the CFO come in and see us. We think he's full of shit. We're not going to buy the stock. But you're able to go through a long process. And so for a company that's a category of one, whether it's a DraftKings or whether it's a Ginkgo in synthetic biology or skills, the company is skill gaming, which is which is uh, video games like esports, but casual esports where you can play against other people for money. Those are companies. There's no other company like them. There's no comps. They make sense to do as a spec. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Harry Sloan. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, Hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. 
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. And we're back with Harry Sloan, who's talking about SPAC deals he's done out of his Eagle Equity Partners outfit. Talking about the media business. You know, you are are far from alone in terms of people in the media world being active in the SPAC space. We're seeing all sorts of activity from from people like uh, uh, Todd Boley, Joe Ionello from CBS, Greg Maffei from Liberty. What, what do you think it is about the media and entertainment space that makes it sort of SPAC friendly? Yeah, no, there's a lot of Kevin Mayer and Tom Stagg. Oh, yeah, those are the best uh, yeah. I think they've done. I think they've done two SPACs. Todd just announced he's doing. I think Vivid Seats, which I think DraftKings may have invested in. Um, yeah, look, I think SPACs are covering every aspect, uh, every industry. I mean, there's a hundred biotech SPACs. A year ago, there were no biotech SPACs. Uh, SPACs have become the flavor of the month for biotech. Um, they haven't really become the flavor yet for entertainment. There have been a few deals. Sagansi, my partner, Jeff Sagansi, my great partner for many years, um, you know, he has a background in entertainment. He was he, he ran CBS. He ran Sony Pictures. Um, Eleven years ago, when he and I launched our first SPAC, we specifically said, we were the first ones actually specifically said that we're targeting companies in the media. We're all generalists. They're financial people. We had both come out of the entertainment industry. It's funny that we, um, I was in my late 50s. He was in maybe his mid 50s. I'd been running MGM at the time. He had been running something else. And, and we had said to investors, we said, look, we'll, we'll find a company, but we both run public companies. If something goes wrong, uh, you know, we could step in and run the company. And that was a terrible, terrible marketing approach because the companies we then want to acquire be worried you know, would they, would the founders and the, and the CEOs lose their job because Jeff or I would actually were trying to do it just to get a job for ourselves. Uh, so we got quickly off of that and never, you know, even talked about it, nor have we jumped into any companies into the management. But we targeted media and entertainment. And what we said then, this is 2011, we had said that traditional media entertainment, television, movies, cable television, satellite, all of that stuff, uh, there was no great growth. The only growth in those days was going to be digital. It was 1.0 or 2.0, I don't know what it was. So we said to the investors when we raised that spec, we said, what kind of deal are you looking for? I said, well, if it's in the U.S., there's nothing in traditional media that you could IPO, meaning that would have this kind of growth. So if we did something in the U.S., we would do something in what was then called new media, okay, digital media. However, if we're going to do traditional media, we'll do it outside the U.S. in some high growth market that hasn't been, you know, over, overbuilt already. So we go to an emerging territory like in India or in Indonesia. And in those cases, you could do satellite or cable. And ironically, it worked out that way. The first SPAC we did was a company called Global Eagle Entertainment, which provided Wi-Fi connections for airlines and content. 
So we bought the biggest company that controlled content supply to airlines, had all the airlines in contract, and a company that had the technology to provide Wi-Fi via satellite. So now you take Wi-Fi via granted, you know, granted on airlines and you get all your movies that way. But 10 years ago, it was a very beginning business. So our first spec, as we said, if we do something domestically, this was mainly domestic, we would do something in new media. You couldn't get any more new media in 2011 than than Wi-Fi to the airlines. It's still very, very well um, established. Uh, and technically, if you're if you're trying to sign on when you're on a flight. And the second spec deal we did, actually, we took a satellite TV company, traditional media public, but in India, an emerging territory. So this traditional media, it's got to be a high growth emerging territory. It's in the U.S. It had to be uh, new media. So it doesn't... It doesn't sound as if you think, say, you know, SPACs could have a unique role in reshaping a media and entertainment business that, that seems to be going through some pretty big changes right now. In, um, you know, I think our next SPAC, if we do one, um, might look along those lines. I do think the cards are going to be reshuffled. I think there's going to be some orphan companies that come out of these big mergers as they continue to go on. Um, you know, an example would be the one of the great IPOs of this year was Warner Media. It was it was not Warner Media? It was Warner Music, which during the time Warner merger was an orphaned asset. They didn't think much of you know music industry in those days. And Len Blavatnik bought it for like three billion dollars, and they took it public this year for thirty billion dollars. You find something like that, an asset that out of one of these mergers that doesn't necessarily belong, or you get a company like AT&T, Time Warner, where they're divesting themselves, you know, they sold Warner Media, for example, to Discovery, there may be some opportunities. Those are also very, very big deals, and you would need a very, very big SPAC. Um, and there, are, there aren't any right now. Our, the biggest one was the one we had uh, soaring in with 1.7 billion, it did a $15 billion deal, as I may have mentioned earlier. Um, the biggest one out there now is maybe a billion. They could do a five to $10 billion deal. Those big media deals could be bigger than that. So possible, if, if, particularly if it's our spec, which could probably ra raise a big enough fund to be able to do a bigger deal. It, it sounds like what you're describing with these potential orphans and the opportunities there, SPACs sort of step into the mold that private equity has been in previous years. They're, they've been sort of the white knights that have rescued some distressed companies. Yeah, uh, TBG came in and picked up DirecTV, right? Um, you're absolutely right. SPAC is somewhere between late stage private investment and IPO. So one thing that public investors don't like is these private companies, especially in the tech world. Um, we saw this with, with AppLovin. We saw it with um, Roblox recently. The last private round would be done in the case of Roblox was like a $4 billion valuation. By the time they, they uh, did their IPO, it was 40. So in one year, the public investors had to pay $40 billion, whereas the private investors were investing at four. And the public investors are saying, well, we need to get in sooner. SPAC actually is a way to take those companies public sooner. In the case of private equity, you're absolutely right. SPAC is, is an alternative. So if a company is looking to spin off an asset like Warner, up Warner Music in those days, um, 
or DirecTV was spinning off, or, or AT&T was spinning off uh, DirecTV. They look at private equity, they look at selling it to TBG as they did in this case, but they also look at SPACs. I'm also curious what you think of the fate that has uh, befallen MGM, which of course you used to run, and now M- Amazon could be scooping up. Did you ever foresee that kind of acquisition? When I was running MGM, I didn't see the tech companies, but they weren't in streaming because I, 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 I only ran MGM to, through 2010. There was a period of time, though, I'm guessing it was about five or six years ago, seven years ago, when the tech companies came through Hollywood and they really did kick the tires on MGM. They kicked the tires on Lionsgate. They kicked the tires on Sony Pictures, a lot of the sort of you know, uh, standalone uh, production and library companies. Apple was, was in town. Amazon was in town. Google was in town. Microsoft. I remember they, they all came through. And for whatever reason, there, there were no deals. And I think what's happened is the more of these big platforms for streaming, you know, so now you've got Apple and you've got Disney Plus, and you've got Netflix and you've got Amazon Prime and you've got Paramount Plus and you've got Stars, and, you know, that there's a there's a, a shortage of co- content, and if you don't have a historical library like Disney had, and even they didn't have enough, that's why they acquired Fox. You do need to look at the MGMs and the Lionsgates and the Sonys uh, because there's just not enough there's not enough library there's not enough uh, bulk to, to there's not enough deep library to fill these streaming platforms. So no, uh, I didn't anticipate it when I was at MGM. It was too early. I did it see it take place when they kicked the tires five or six years ago and, and said no thanks. And I do see it being the trend now. I mean I I mean my opinion the the, the best TV library out there by far is CBS. And I don't know why Apple doesn't just buy that. I mean, they or 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 any or, or Google if they decided to go back in streaming business, which they, they may not, or or Amazon. Uh, so I would I would think that I would think Sony, I would think Lionsgate. Uh, all, all are good ideas for them to acquire. I, I, and I think in two years, you'll see one of those deals get done. Maybe all of them with a tech company. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, if Amazon gets turned down, I mean, there's a possibility. The, you know, what happens with these mergers is, those of you that are antitrust uh, students, they're either assigned to the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, or the DOJ, the Department of Justice. And I think the Amazon acquisition of um, MGM is it. FTC, and I think the FTC chairman did she write her master's her doctoral thesis on breaking up Amazon? So, or, and maybe for that reason, it's not there. Maybe it's, I don't know where it is. Maybe it's DOJ. But if that isn't allowed to take place, and I think it should, uh, if that isn't allowed to take place, uh, that would put a question mark around all this. But again, Sony, CBS, Lionsgate, MGM, you know, all of them should be consolidated into. into I don't see them being standalones. So you see consolidation coming, no surprise there. What do you think of the the so-called streaming wars that we're enveloped in right now uh, from Netflix on down? Uh, Did you ever foresee a time where the business would be in in a position like this? And and how do you think it's going to play out? Uh, Well... Did I ever think that the majority of 
people in the world would be watching all of their content on their over the internet, whether whatever device, whether it's the computer or whether it's the TV. I've only started thinking that probably when you started thinking that, which is the last three or four years when we realized that, you know, being able to watch shows whenever you wanted them without commercials, you know, all, all those advantages are just so clear. Um, I didn't think until this, the incredibly successful launch of Disney Plus that everybody would be doing it, or even that everybody has to do it. Um, so I, I may have missed that one. Uh, I wouldn't have anticipated it happening this fast and this fast all over the world. It's not just that these guys are cutting into the traditional networks, ABC, CBS, NBC's audience, even though those players are off streaming. It's happening everywhere. Every one of the TV network stocks in the world, whether it's ITV in UK or Telecinco in Spain or anywhere in the world, every, every traditional television, satellite, cable, everyone else's stocks just you know hurt by 50%. Um, so it's happened fast everywhere where streaming has, has taken over. It, you know, as far as what it would look like, at what I anticipate what it would look like, I could not have anticipated the amount of new content. I could not have anticipated that we'd have a scenario now where Netflix is spending $16 billion alone every year on content. That, that's more than all four networks combined, plus HBO and Showtime five years ago. And on top of that, Disney spending what ten or twelve billion, and Amazon spending ten billion, and Apple Plus. I mean, I never could have anticipated that you know spending on production would go from fifteen billion to fifty or sixty billion in the last several years. So you're you're well into this second career now in in SPAC land, and I'm curious how you got here and, and what you learned in your Hollywood days that sort of led the way to where you are now. Well, look, I always liked public companies. Um, my so-called Hollywood days, I mean, the first company that we created and took to public was New World Entertainment, 1985, before most of these students were born. Uh, that was a successful public stock. Uh, and we sold it in 1989 to Ron Perlman. Uh, the next one, SBS Broadcasting, was TV stations outside the US. Took that public, sold it to KKR and Premier in 2005. And then I ran MGM and I was working for private equity. And I, I can't blame it all on private equity, but the company was so leveraged that when 2008 came around during the financial crisis, you know, it had to be restructured. It was a failure. Um, and I didn't really like working for private equity. Um, I did much better and I enjoyed it much more working at public companies. And uh, so after MGM, it's now 2010. I'm I think I was still chairman until beginning of 11 or maybe beginning, I forgot what it was. But when I got through with that, I looked back at my career and said I'd had two public companies that were extremely successful. I'd been in a private equity company that, you know, was really hard for me to cost what I wanted. If I'd stayed there, would I have sold it for $8 billion to Amazon? I don't know, but it got restructured at like 1.5. So to me, um, you know, I wasn't able to do what I would have liked to have done there. So then I hear about SPACs in 2010. I'm told you could raise money on your good looks or on your on your traffic on your track record, and uh, and buy a company. And I wanted to run another company. I want to be involved in management of the company. What were my options? Uh, I could uh, dust off my resume and go to boards and you know try and apply for a job. That's not very attractive. Um, 
I could try and buy a company, but the size company that I could afford to buy didn't meet my appetite of the kind of company I wanted to run after MGM and SPS and New World and all that. And then I heard about these SPACs that you could raise right, a, a bunch of cash and use that, leverage it up. You could raise two, three, we raised 200 on our first one, buy a billion dollar company, and even wouldn't necessarily run it, but could have control over it. Anyway, that's what attracted me to it. It was looked to me to be the best options. And I like public markets. I like public, public markets because if investors don't like what you're doing, they sell your stock and they go away. Um, in private equity, if they don't like what you're doing, they sell the company right out from under you or they fire you. It, it, I just don't think it's a, a, a management-friendly um, model. I think it's a fair-weather model. I think when things are going well, um, they're out looking to sell the company. Uh, when things aren't looking well, they're firing the management and looking to dump the company. So I just, you know, public, just much, much more attractive to me to be to control public companies where I think you get a fairer shake from relatively docile institutional investors. Got it. One year from now, I'm curious if we're talking again, uh, do you expect to add X number of, of new SPAC deals to the marketplace or you're, you're just tending to the seven you've got going? Uh, give us a preview. Um, as far as canning the seven I have going, you know, some of them have been acquired. Uh, at the moment, there's only um, that's the ones that are going. At DraftKings, I'm I'm vice chairman, lead director, uh, skills, I'm the director, Ginkgo, I'm the director. So there's only three uh, that I have an ongoing role with. The others have either been merged into another company or they've been sold or, or something happened uh, uh, different with the company. Um, I think personally, I think personally, a year from now, I'm too old to be, you know, out um, doing a, a job as a, as a chairman or a CEO. And when we rang the bell two weeks ago with Ginkgo, um, that was the first time in 37 years that I was a chairman or CEO of a public company. So I think it's going to be boards. Um, I think it's going to be putting deals together. But uh, I think I've seen my last uh, chairman and CEO, the last SPAC, which I was chairman and CEO, is probably the last one where be, you know, that active. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more 
and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.